You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefe, Zuman, Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalinde, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our Quartermaster Heather. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Oftentimes, online, I'll stumble across one of those threads somewhere entitled something like, What's the most mind-blowing historical fact you know? Occasionally, there, I'll see something totally new and exciting, but usually it's the same five or six answers. And I don't mean to disparage those threads, I'm glad people are having these discussions and talking about cool historical tidbits. And many people, normal people, people who don't spend as much time with their noses buried in history books as I do, can glean a lot of interesting stuff from them. They can learn and discover new topics about which they'd like to learn more, but once you've seen a couple of those threads, you've kind of seen them all. Yes, Cleopatra lived closer to the moon landing than the construction of the Great Sphinx in Egypt. And that's, you know, kind of cool, but it really just stems from a misunderstanding or maybe a lack of understanding of world history. Because, I mean, human history is old. Really, really old. The Sphinx, which is far from the oldest relic of our past, is 4,500 years old, and Cleopatra lived just over 2,000 years ago. So, we still have almost 500 years to throw that little factoid around. And yes... That fact should be conditioned with a ton of terms like generally accepted and believed, but, you know, it holds up. And again, I'm glad people are having those discussions. Someone who might not have the same understanding, who, well, might not have paid the best attention in history class, and I was occasionally guilty of that, can learn a fact like that somewhere randomly online and have their curiosity piqued. That can lead to a greater understanding of that topic and world history in general. Another similar fact that I often see is that Oxford University in England is older than the Aztec Empire, and this sort of mind-blowing fact stems from the same basic problem, a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding. The same factors that make it mind-blowing make the Cleopatra factoid mind-blowing. Sometimes when we hear about Cleopatra's Egypt or the Aztec Empire, we... Some of us can tend to lump them in with all of ancient Egypt or all of pre-Columbian Mesoamerican society, and we shouldn't do that. 
Cleopatra's Egypt was a far different place from the Egypt of the ancient pharaohs, separated by thousands of years, but to many, they both merge into the mist of ancient history. And the Aztecs suffer a similar fate. They're relatively modern, like the 1400s. Johannes Gutenberg was out there kick-starting the European Renaissance with his printing press and his Bible at the same time that the Aztec Empire was reaching its height. But we see them, or you know, some of us do, in this monolithic way. And it was actually that little fact about Oxford University being older than the Aztecs that brought all of this on. I was reading about Oxford, trying to untangle all of the different colleges of which it's comprised, and how old they are, and what they do within the University of Oxford. That got me thinking about those threads and these mind-blowing facts, but the reason that I'm thinking about Oxford at all is because of one of our characters today. His name was Sir Henry Wotton, and he was a man who went to Oxford. Now, Sir Henry's story is not particularly interesting, at least not to me, except where it intersects our story of Barbary piracy, but we're going to be talking a fair bit about that aspect of it. Sir Henry was a well-born son, but he wasn't noble. He was a young man who went to the finest schools in England. He went to Winchester College, which was sort of a high school, with the motto, Manners Maketh the Man, and then he followed that up by going to the New College at Oxford, and finally the Queen's College. Those were kind of undergrad and graduate studies. Sir Henry reminds me of the opening of Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. Robinson Crusoe, well, Defoe is discussing how his character, Robinson Crusoe, intends to go to sea when he reaches his manhood. But Robinson's father warns against this. He says of ocean-faring travel, quote, It was for men of desperate fortunes on one hand, or of aspiring, superior fortunes on the other. And he continues, quote, Mine was the middle state or what might be called the upper station of low life, which he had found by long experience was the best state in the world, the most suited to human happiness. End quote. Now I'm just going to blow right past the fact that Daniel Defoe, possibly the first and certainly one of the greatest English novelists of all time, almost certainly pulled that line about men of desperate fortunes straight from the same source that I named an episode after, I'll save that for later discussions of Alexander Selkirk and William Dampier and Daniel Defoe. But Sir Henry Wotton reminds me very much of that sentiment. His father was well off enough to send him to the finest schools, but left Henry only with a modest inheritance. We would probably consider him something like upper middle class. That education that he received, though, served him very well in his life. Sir Henry went into diplomacy as a career path. He served as a secretary to an earl who was, at the time, working in Poland as well as Italy and Germany. Now that earl, his employer, would later be executed for high treason against Queen Elizabeth, and that earl's other secretary, the senior secretary, was hanged along with him. So Sir Henry thought that it might be prudent for the time to leave English service. He worked on the continent for a while, but then he returned to Britain to work for the King of Scotland, James VI. So, when King James VI of Scotland also became King James I of England, Sir Henry found himself well-positioned. He became an ambassador for King James, or maybe he continued serving in his ambassadorial role, only now it was for England. 
He was on assignment in the year 1604 in the Holy Roman Empire when Sir Henry uttered the line for which he would be remembered forever. Quote, an ambassador is an honest gentleman sent to lie abroad for the good of his country. End quote. This is episode 91, Honest Gentleman Sent to Lie. Sir Henry uttered that phrase in Bavaria, but he was on his way to Venice. King James had assigned Sir Henry to serve as the English ambassador to the Venetian Republic, and he would serve in that role for many years. It should have been a relatively easy job. The Doge of Venice, an elected official, a commander-in-chief similar to a modern president, well, the Doge was something of an ally of King James I. The Venetians had severed ties with England when Elizabeth was in power, but King James was a new monarch and the Stuarts brought on a new time. There was a lot of lucrative trade to be won by allying oneself, at least in a trade alliance, with England. Plus, at that time, Venice was at odds with the Vatican, and they found some commonality there with England as well as the Netherlands. They weren't a Protestant nation like England or the Netherlands, but they were more accepting of Protestantism than almost anywhere in Italy or the Holy Roman Empire, and they found that England and the Netherlands, Protestant states, were more willing to trade with a country that was at odds with the Vatican than, say, Spain. And we can see the building relationship between Venice and England in the numerous works of literature that the English produced about Venice after King James took the throne. The most famous example of this actually comes before James took the throne, The Merchant of Venice by William Shakespeare, but there were tons of others after James took the throne. Positive relations with Venice had become a national policy, and James, who was a famous patron of the arts, saw to it that the playwrights and poets in his country stoked the ego of the Venetians to no end. Eventually, the English trade interests conflicted with Dutch and Venetian trade interests and then the Thirty Years' War, and all of that would put a serious pressure on the relationship between England and Venice, but in 1604 they were trading partners and relatively friendly. So that should have been a cake job for a favored servant of King James, right? There might be a bit of building relations early on, but everybody was on board, so there were no difficult talks to have. But then, in 1605, a man named John Ward jumped ship from his naval service, stole a ship and then another, and made his way to Tunis, where he preyed primarily on Venetian shipping. He was an Englishman, an English pirate, and his raiding of the ships of Venice strained the relationship between Venice and England. It made the relationship between Sir Henry and the Doge of Venice much more contentious. And then, John Ward captured the Rainiera Isodorina, and that changed everything. Sir Henry was called before the Doge, furious at the time, to answer for John Ward's crimes, and it seemed for a moment that he just might pay for those crimes right then and right there with his own head. But, you know, you don't kill the ambassador, that's a bad policy, it's the sort of thing that starts wars, so Sir Henry was allowed to walk away from that meeting, but he had a serious need to find out everything that he could about the notorious arch-pirate, Jack Ward. Now, Sir Henry had a counterpart in England, the Venetian ambassador to King James. His name was Ambassador Zorzi Giustinian, 
and he was equally furious as the Doge, or, you know, at least he was as furious as the Doge and the Senate of Venice instructed him to be. Sir Henry didn't utter the phrase about an ambassador being an honest gentleman sent to lie about Giustinian, but he definitely thought that Giustinian fit the part. The Venetian ambassador, Zorzi Giustinian, is a much more interesting character to me than Henry Wotton is. At least, his official dispatches, which is where we know the most about him, seem to have a lot more flair and character than Wotton's did. Remember, Wotton was a Winchester man, and manners maketh the man. I wouldn't be surprised to find out that, as a boy, he was a Milford man, to be neither seen nor heard. You can always tell a Milford man. And that's not just a throwaway Arrested Development joke. In his role as a diplomat, Wotton strove to remove himself from the proceedings as much as possible. Not to say that he didn't do his job, he engaged the Doge and the Senate, and he wrote all of the dispatches necessary, but he tried to leave his personal opinions and attitudes out of it. He was a representative of the King and the Council, and he took that role very seriously. He strove to be neither seen nor heard, except as a representative of the King. Giustinian was a lot more willing to put himself out there, to give his personal opinions on anything and everything. Perhaps this was simply a cultural difference between the English and Venetian people. Giustinian was vocal about all of his opinions about everything, including England itself, and none of his opinions about his now home country seemed to be very good. Historian George Bach writes in his biography of John Ward, Barbary Pirate, The Life and Crimes of John Ward, the most infamous privateer of his time, quote, An appointment to the court of King James was not a plum. Viewed from the sun-drenched piazzi of imperial Venice, England was a cold, dimly lit and barbarous land at the European periphery, its language as obscure as its arts and industry were rudimentary. Arriving in England in early 1607, Giustinian accepted his posting with good grace, Whatever his feelings for the English climate, not to mention the English diet, Giustinian from the start embraced his dual role as Venice's official representative and chief spy in this remote backwater, and he applied himself to local intrigue with gusto. End quote. And aside from the climate and their industry and their food, there was another topic about which Giustinian was particularly vitriolic in regard to England. Most of that didn't make it into his official documents, but Giustinian was appalled by English sexuality and sensuality. Not an overabundance of sensuality, a lack of it. But more than anything, Giustinian appeared to be disgusted by the seeming embrace of homosexuality in England, or at least the easing of social norms surrounding it. Remember, this was the England of Shakespeare, of cross-dressing on stage, of wild poetry and all kinds of debauch. Now, Giustinian would never see the England of King James' grandson, Charles II, the Merry Monarch, which was even less sexually inhibited than King James, and he certainly would never see the court of Louis XIV, which was another step above entirely. But the England of James I was still a lot of fun. James cared more for plays and parties and the hunt than he did for ruling and it showed. Extramarital affairs had 
always been the norm, but at one time they had been something to keep secret and quiet. But they became the norm in England out in the open, and same-sex relationships between the nobility were accepted, as long as they were kept quiet and children were still produced by marriage. Now, all of this disgust and vitriol may have been just a ruse to cover Giustinian's own homosexuality. Or perhaps not. Reports show that while he may have condemned the lax morals that led to all of those extramarital affairs, well, he took advantage of that culture. He was a dusky, charming, young Italian in an England that was, at the moment, somewhat idolizing dusky young Italians. A noblewoman might go out to see a production of The Merchant of Venice and see herself as Portia, beautiful, wealthy, and wildly desired. And the closest analog she might find to any one of her three handsome suitors in the play was likely to be the Venetian ambassador. Reportedly, Giustinian was more than happy to take advantage of all that. He could speak Italian. He could serve the best Venetian delicacies to be found anywhere in England, and then he could woo these women with bad poetry and fine wine. And he did, but something about it seems almost grudging, almost as though he felt it were a responsibility to his homeland, as the handsome young Italian representing Venice, to engage all of these women. They were a diversion for him, to be sure, but not a diversion with which he was particularly happy. He seems to have liked the women of England only slightly more than the climate and food, but perhaps that was because he was more interested in their husbands. That might be the sort of thing that wouldn't even make it into a private journal, though. But perhaps he didn't begrudge these women the time spent on them because he was more interested in their husbands, but because he was more interested in his job. He focused on his job more than women or food or anything else in his life. He spent most of his time and his resources learning everything he could about this arch-pirate John Ward. In fact, he may be the original source calling Ward an arch-pirate after the capture of the Soderina, and it's very much thanks to him that we have as much information as we do about John Ward. It seems very much that the Privy Council of King James would have been happy to send a squadron of ships or two, take care of Jack Ward, and sweep all of this trouble under the rug. But then, every couple of weeks, Giustinian would arrive before the Council with a new report about the crimes of Jack Ward. And unfortunately for the Council, that became official record. It couldn't be swept away and dealt with quietly. What's more... Giustinian wasn't just complaining about this to the council, he was sending all of it back to Venice. George Bach again writes in Barbary Pirate, quote, Giustinian issued letters and diplomatic dispatches like a paper mill, a torrent of ink, paper, and sealing wax, end quote. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. 
enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Now, without all of those dispatches, most of them stemming from Giustinian, we would likely know much less about Jack Ward. Had not he captured the Rainiera Isolarina and turned himself into that arch-pirate, John Ward would probably have blended into the mist of pirates. But Ward did capture that Venetian giant. He did become the most infamous Englishman of his age, and he can serve as the first real English pirate of the Age of Sail, There were certainly other English pirates during the Age of Sail before Jack Ward, but none of them are as well known. None of them achieved the fame, the infamy, of John Ward. There are probably better arguments to be made, but I think that Jack Ward captures the spirit of pirates and piracy better than anyone before him. He was someone who captured the imagination and who inspired stories. That's half of what a pirate is about. But remember that this story here in Barbary, including John Ward and Simon Danziker and Francis Verney, all of that is taking place long before any of the other pirates we've talked about, except for Drake. It took place 50 years before Henry Morgan or Francois Lolonais, and John Ward absolutely informed those later buccaneers, especially the English. Think about the allusions that we see in modern-day hip-hop to someone like Al Capone or Bugsy Malone or maybe Scarface, a fictionalized version of Capone. They were legends. But the gangster rappers of the early 90s especially seemed to idolize them. John Ward was much the same with later pirates. Maybe not to Al Capone levels, that would probably be Francis Drake, but, you know, in the same game. But there is another major reason why we know as much as we do about John Ward. There are records from the Admiralty Court. See, when John Ward returned from capturing the Reniere Sodorina, his men cashed out their shares. They were worth, from those Admiralty records, about 15 pounds a share. At least two of the men who were involved in the Admiralty Court proceedings owned five and a half shares each. That's about 83 pounds sterling, and that's on top of whatever money they may have already stashed away. Those two men were named John Key and William Longcastle, 
Now, we've mentioned their trial before. They were both captains under Jack Ward. And those five and a half shares, those 83 pounds sterling, well, that was a lot of money back in 1607. It was enough to feed a modest family for maybe five or six years. It was certainly enough to buy land, to start a life, to start a family, and to retire from piracy. And that's what John Key and William Longcastle intended to do. After the capture of Sodorina, they cashed out and booked passage back to England on board a merchantman called the Unicorn. And they weren't alone here. They sailed with Thomas Mitten, Walter Hancock, and probably eight or ten other unnamed crew members. I can't say that I fault them for this. It seems like a good time to leave. Now, all of these men may have been able to sneak in under the radar. Perhaps they'd bribe a few officials, but most of them could carry their money wherever they chose in England. It was easy to change your name in those days, especially if you weren't already tied to land and family. But that wasn't what happened. These pirates were found hiding off the Cornish coast in a small boat, Presumably, at the moment, they were planning their re-entry into England, but they were arrested and dragged off to the Admiralty. Strangely, these pirates were not tried for their association with the arch-pirate John Ward. Not officially, at least. It was certainly noted and added to the mountain of character evidence against the pirates, but it was not the charge for which they were on trial. That's mostly because... Any piracy that they may have allegedly committed under John Ward down in the Mediterranean would have been hard to prove. It would have been expensive and time-consuming and even potentially impossible to find witnesses on the Barbary coast that would testify against them. The Admiralty probably could have done it, but they didn't have to. Instead, they stuck to these pirates' very first act of piracy an act that happened before any of them met John Ward and one for which there were already witnesses. A few years earlier, the merchant ship Ulysses sailed out of London with a mission of trade in the West Indies. Now, the Ulysses had no proper captain, but she was under the authority of the factor of a man named Mr. Howe. A factor was something of an accountant and a lawyer, a little bit more power than a secretary, but someone with the power of attorney. And it was typical to have one of these sort of representatives on board any merchant voyage. They had exceptional power in the name of the merchant in question. They decided where to sail and where to trade and what to trade. In many ways, they were the boss of even the ship's captain on most merchant vessels. But it was an exceptionally bad idea to leave an accountant in command of a sailing vessel. You know, unless he had some prior expertise in that matter. Especially, you know, if you're going across the Channel to France or the Netherlands, that's not that dangerous. But if you're taking them on a transatlantic voyage to the West Indies, you need experienced commanders and sailors. Almost immediately, the Ulysses started having trouble. There was tricky sailing immediately after leaving the strait. There were storms, and then there were serious issues with basic ship maintenance, something that this factor had no idea how to deal with. The factor was not a prideful or foolish man, however. He ordered the ship to turn around and to head back to England, to Plymouth, on the southwestern tip. He realized that he wasn't the man to lead this ship. So in Plymouth they picked up four sailors, William Longcastle, William Taverner, John Moore, 
and a slave that belonged to William Longcastle. All three of them were adept seamen, and this factor decided to hire them on as the captain, first mate, and pilot, respectively. At face value, this was a smart move, and it seemed to pay off very quickly. As soon as they got out to sea, these three experienced sailors noticed additional problems on the Ulysses that would prevent the Atlantic crossing, or at least make it significantly more difficult. At least, that's what they told the factor. They told him that before they began the crossing, they would have to stop on the coast of Morocco at a seaport called Salih. At the port of Salih, the Ulysses met another English ship, the Susan. They hailed Susan and invited her to pull up alongside to share a banquet. Now, this wasn't uncommon behavior, especially in port between two ships of the same nation. Naturally, the master of the Susan, Captain Anthony Y., thought nothing of it. The crew of Susan came aboard Ulysses and sat down to a feast, complete with fresh meat, exotic fruit, and copious wine. During the feast, William Longcastle, the captain, along with his companions William Taverner and John Moore, slipped away from the table. Perhaps a couple of other men that they had talked into doing so did as well. It's notable that Captain Longcastle's slave did not slip away. Perhaps it would have been a giveaway. It would have been too obvious. He was more than likely serving table at the time. While the festivities were still going on below decks, these Plymouth sailors sneaked aboard the Susan, cut her free, and sailed off into the night. Longcastle and his fellow, now they were pirates, sailed out of the harbor without the alarm being raised, and would sail on to Tunis to join up with Jack Ward and take place in all of his exploits. But on board the Ulysses, the festivities were still going strong. I would love to see just how the discovery that the Susan was gone went on aboard the Ulysses. I imagine maybe a lone sailor going above board to relieve himself, only to find that his ship was, well, not there anymore. Maybe he raised the alarm, or maybe he quietly got ward to Captain Y, but either way, I wish I could have been there for the long moments of searching the harbor, followed by the accusations that followed. Captain Y was most certainly not pleased, and he blamed the crew of Ulysses. The factor, who was the focus of most of the blame, turned to find Captain Longcastle, to see exactly what he should do in this situation, but... William Longcastle seemed to have gone missing, along with his two companions. Everyone knew immediately what happened, and the Ulysses actually carried those men around looking for Ulysses and eventually carried them back to England. But Captain Longcastle took the Susan all the way to Tunis. He gathered more crew there, including a corps of Janissary warriors, and went out on the account as a full-time pirate. Now, his exploits following the capture of the Susan were less well recorded, at least until after the capture of the Rainieri Soderina. That's when he cashed out, sailed for England, and got himself arrested for high seas piracy. Now, had he gone about it properly, it's still very possible that he could have made it into England unnoticed. But considering how he did so, I tend to think of his decision to sail to England in a stolen ship and apparently using his real name, I tend to think of that as a really dumb decision. But remember, this was the first generation of major pirates operating in the Age of Sail. There wasn't really any institutional memory here. No pirates knew what would happen to them if they tried to go back to England. They could assume, of course, but 
privateers, and most of these men had previously been privateers, rarely faced any real consequences. Most of these men may have expected the same sort of reception. And then, Captain Longcastle didn't commit any piracy in or around England. He captured the Susan, an English ship, but that was all the way down in Morocco. I mean, who's going to remember that anyway? And he committed acts against the ships of other nations, but rarely from England, and always far away from English shores. So he assumed, I think, that he was in the clear. The problem here, with this particular brand of out-and-out -out piracy being so new, at least to the English and the Dutch, is that there wasn't anyone there to teach them better, that institutional memory. There were no old, grizzled, haggard, out-of-work pirates drinking away their days at the bar and telling old tales, in many cases cautionary tales. There was no one to hear them talking about their plans to return to England and say something along the lines of, Going back to England, huh? Yeah, I know a fellow went back to England. Good man, good pirate. Name a Longcastle it was. Saved my ship, my men, more than a few times. Out there, on the blue. But he cashed out, retired from the life, planned to go start a family. Back in England. We all wished him luck. Man never even made it to shore. They found him and hauled his whole crew away. But he was clever, Longcastle was. Had a plan. Always had a plan. When they found him, Longcastle had a man made his way to Cornwall, deep inland, deep cover. He found the merchant captain, the fat one, name a Y if I remember right, he was going to testify. And this man, he didn't kill Y, no, that was too dirty, too many fingers to point. This pirate, he paid Y off, the cost of one of his ships, the one that Longcastle commandeered, and then he paid him a whole heap of coins to make sure that Mr. Y forgot all about it. And that's exactly what happened. Probably, at least. Mr. Y, the primary witness, never showed up at the Admiralty Court to testify against Longcastle or any of his men. The generally accepted explanation here is that Longcastle paid him off. But I kind of like this storyteller, this hypothetical man in a bar telling tales. Maybe we'll call him... Captain Exposition. He could go on in that dingy seaside bar. Yeah, Longcastle was clever. Even read books sometimes, knew a little Roman talk. Liked to sit down and think about things till he figured out a course. He thought he'd figured this one out too. Thought he'd walk free. But the court, they're always one step ahead. They brought out his man, a slave he got over in Plymouth that he had to abandon years ago. Everything he saw, every detail of every last crime. Longcastle said to him, you couldn't trust one of those dark-skinned heathens. But that was his mistake. He trapped himself. Longcastle was there when his man was baptized. They had the church records to prove it. Like I says, one step ahead. So they took Longcastle to the docks, him and all his men, all of them friends of mine. And there they strung him up, hanged him and left him there for a week. As a warning... To men like me, and men like you. Now, Captain Exposition here is exceptionally well-informed for a dockside drunk. I don't know how he learned the ins and outs of Captain Longcastle's court appearance. However, later pirates in the decades to come would have characters similar to that sitting around. Older pirates, veterans who had seen everything. They had the usual rung of fantastical tales to tell, as well as the battle stories. 
but these old buccaneers had more utilitarian tales to tell. Those stories were how young and foolish pirates who were new to the game learned just what to do and what not to do. For example, these old pirates might tell stories about dangerous waters that usually had a heavy Spanish presence. It was a warning. Or they might tell tales about certain less-than-chaste women who would make one night very fun, but make the following weeks quite torturous. There were tales of bartenders who watered down drinks, and then they would almost certainly have a warning for anyone planning to sail back to England. It was almost always a bad idea. Longcastle, Key, and all of their friends, well, they didn't have anyone like that. However, anyone who thought to follow them to England would have had someone like that. See, everyone on Barbary learned about the death of Longcastle. And it wasn't just rumor spreading or even news that brought them word of Longcastle. It was official policy. King James I had agents operating in Barbary. Most prominent among them was Henry Pepwell. They were, well, some of them were spies who were sent to integrate themselves into the pirate ranks. And then there were more traditional intelligence officers tasked with gathering intel on Ward and his compatriots. Most of that intel was gained from the spies within Ward's ranks. There were occasional plans set down by some of these men, including Pepwell, to harm the operations of the pirates. But they never materialized. We're going to talk about one specific example of that next time. Instead, Pepwell and his compatriots were there to learn as much as they could until an all-out military campaign could be raised to deal with the pirates. But since they were unable to engage the pirates violently or even secretively, they engaged with another weapon, propaganda. And Pepwell wasn't alone here. All of his compatriots from England were doing it, as well as the Venetian Senate, who had their own agents there. There were agents of the Doge as well, and there were additional agents sent by Zorzi Giustinian and Henry Wotton, the two ambassadors from England and Venice. That's to say nothing of the French or the Spanish or the Dutch, who had their own people operating there. But those ambassadors, the English and Venetian, proclaimed the death of Longcastle from the rooftops. They proclaimed it in the city squares and handed it out in written form, in English and Venetian and Arabic and Turkish. They let everyone that was there know that Longcastle and Key and all of their associates were dead men. This was intended, in part, perhaps, to turn the people of Barbary against the pirates, to show the craftsmen and farmers that these men were criminals, not friends. But more than that, it was intended for the eyes and the ears of the pirates, to scare them, to intimidate them, and to remind them that justice was coming. And on one level, at least, it really seems to have worked. Around this time, a little bit later, but around this time, John Ward got Rainiera Isodorina outfitted as a proper man-of-war, and got her ready to set sail. His men were feeling comfortable and protected and powerful. Mostly, those that hadn't cashed out were staying put. A few may have gone over to Danziker while he was refitting the Rainiera Isodorina, but once he got it under sail, even more came to join his ranks. On the other hand, the man himself, the admiral, the arch-pirate John Ward, well, he seems to have been hedging his bets. What happened here with a broad brush 
is Ward sent a messenger back to England, perhaps several messengers, sometime after the execution of his former followers. Later evidence will suggest that he had agents of his own operating in England and Venice. He knew a surprising amount about the mood and the activities in the royal courts there. So he didn't have to get men to the king, only get men to the coast to meet his men who were living in England already men who could prove that they had not operated as pirates in the Mediterranean. What these messengers were seeking was pardon. Specifically a pardon for John Ward, but also a general pardon for the English pirates operating in Barbary. All of them if possible, but at least those operating under Ward. Ward wanted a proclamation that would declare any of them wayward privateers rather than pirates. Sure, maybe they would face a fine, or maybe even a short sentence, but not life imprisonment, and absolutely not execution. Now, most historians agree, and their argument has merit, the dates seem to line up best here, they agree that Ward sent this missive off after he heard about Longcastle and Key and their execution. Perhaps he didn't want that to be the end to his life, and perhaps he wanted to secure a peaceful end to his life. However, not all historians agree that that's exactly what happened. But really, it's kind of a non-issue. Even if that were the case, even if he did send it off immediately after receiving word about his friends being hanged, King James wouldn't receive this word until after the events that we're going to discuss next time. Or at least King James was unable to reach a decision until after those events reached England. His response, therefore, was tempered by them. So we're going to wait on that response until next week. We're going to continue our discussion of the ambassadors, Giustinian and Watton, who played a major role, as well as the roles of the Doge of Venice, King James of England, and John Ward the Pirate. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, Everyone who has become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has left us a rating or review, and everybody who has suggested this show, without all of you I wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you certainly should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au, that's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, YouTube, or Reddit. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight